The following sermon was preached in the Sunday gathering of First Baptist Church of Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. We pray it bears fruit in your life, and we hope that you share it with others who might also benefit. At the same time, if you're not already, we encourage you to join a faithful local church where you can sit under the preaching of God's word and observe the ordinances. Visit firstbaptistwr.com for more information. Father, I pray that you would give us a clearer vision of your glory and your grace today. I pray that some of those here, or even just one here today, would glimpse your glory for the first time. And I pray that they and all of us here would even just grasp the outskirts of your ways and see and taste that you are riches beyond worth. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I've said previously, we're going to be starting a series on the attributes of God. And last week I said it was fitting that before I begin talking about these attributes of God, I would first prove that this God even exists. And so, last Lord's Day morning, we saw that all things in all existence have a cause. Something does not come from nothing. And since an infinite regression of causes is impossible, since something cannot create itself, and since nothing in this universe is eternal, because everything gets its properties from other things that make it what it is, then there must be a first cause. One who is not caused, but is the cause of all things, the uncaused causer, the immovable mover. One who is life from himself. One who is the source and sustainer of all things, but derives his source and his sustenance from none. So if this first cause exists, which I have proven following a traditional line of Christian reasoning, then what is the nature of this God? What are the attributes of this very first being who made all things? To ask the question of the attributes of God is to ask two simple questions. One, who is God? Two, what is God like? And those are the questions I'll seek to answer in the coming weeks as we think about these things and gaze upon the Lord's beauty as he's revealed himself in nature and scripture. So, who is God? What is God like? A.W. Tozer, pastor last century, wrote in his highly regarded work, The Knowledge of the Holy, that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. So, what comes into your mind when you think about God? Who is the God you worship, the God you pray to, and what is he like? The gods of the ancient world were basically larger-than-life humans. They had basically the same powers as mortal man. 
but they were outsized. They were larger-than-life humans. They had great strength. They had awesome speed. They had skill in war. Maybe they had the ability to control the weather. But there wasn't God, one god. There was a multiple gods, a pantheon of gods. And they had skirmishes. They had battles for supremacy. One could overtake another. They were not pure. They had moral failings. They had flaws, just like any man. So in essence, they were just great men, great creatures, able to do great good or great evil, and able to be manipulated into working according to man's will by using the appropriate formula to appease them. So man could wield a god or gods on his behalf to get what he wanted if he offered up the right sacrifice and gained their good pleasure. So these pagan gods in this mythology that we've seen about Mount Olympus in ancient Greece and things like this, they didn't regard the gods as transcendent, but as great creatures. They were superior to men in power and stature. So they were superior in degree of being. They were great creatures, but they did not differ in kind of being. Though great creatures, they were creatures no less. And from a Christian conception, they were gods in name only. Now, one popular conception of God that's probably kind of out there in the culture still is God as a cosmic Santa Claus. He's a bearded man. He lives up above the clouds. He's benevolent. He's happy. He's joyful. But most of us understand this is not an adequate understanding of the God, the invisible God who made the heavens and the earth and all that fills them out of nothing. But if we're not careful, we can easily slide into these same kinds of ideas without noticing it. These ideas that resulted in Greek mythology. And in the end, we can make the God of the Bible out to be no different than a mercurial Zeus who's subject to whims or a Poseidon or something like that. So who is God? What is God like? And we can actually agree with this pagan mythology that God is near to us. God communicates with us in some respect. Christianity differs greatly in its understanding of the divine nature from this mythology. As I've said, they viewed God or gods as basically being the same nature as men. They were larger-than-life humans. They were like the Kardashians or some Hollywood family living up on Mount Olympus, living a lavish life of vice and things like that. But they did not differ from us, essentially. Christianity is different. Christianity differs in teaching that God is absolutely unlike men. God's being does not just differ in degree from humans, but he differs in kind of being. That is to say that comparing our being, our way of existing with God's being and God's way of existing is comparing apples to oranges. They're not the same. It's like comparing a zebra to a mongoose. They're different. God's being is utterly different and completely other than our being. 
Christianity teaches that the gulf between God and man is so great that man cannot even know God as he is in his essence. The classic saying of the theologians is that the finite cannot contain the infinite. Now think about it. God is far greater, far more immense than oceans. But we all know you can't fit an ocean in a soda bottle. So how can man who is finite know that God? When it comes to the divine essence, who God is, what his nature is, we can only know what God is not and not what he is in himself. And we, when we do speak positively of God, so, so we can't just remain silent, so that we can say something about what he is, we can only speak by analogy. We can only speak of what he is like, not what he is. So we speak in a human way, in human language, expressing human concepts about a being who is unspeakably divine. So what are the attributes of God? The Dutch reformer Van Maastricht says that we call them attributes because they are attributed by us to God, and not as if they are something that he has. For example, you might look, up, look at me up here, and you attribute to me the fact that I am wearing a shirt, or I'm wearing a coat, I have a beard, or I'm loud, or intense. Some people think that. <laughs> All right, amen. Those are my attributes. They are things that I possess. But these are things you could remove from me, and I would still be me. You take away my beard, I'm still Pastor Josh. You take away this suit coat, I'm still Pastor Josh. If I get older and I'm not quite as loud, I'm still Pastor Josh. Or if I'm not quite as intense, I'm still Pastor Josh. God is different. If you took away any attribute of God, he would no longer be God. This is because of a doctrine that Christian theologians call divine simplicity. Divine simplicity. This is a key commitment in Christianity. And to put that simply, it means that God does not have parts. God is one. God does not wear clothes as he is in himself. He does not have a beard as he is in himself. He does not have love, but he is love. That is to say, if you say God is love, you are saying that love characterizes the complete divine essence. Love is who God is. And these attributes are not really distinct from another in God. Love, wrath, power, wisdom, omniscience. His love is his wrath. His wrath is his power. His wisdom is his omniscience. And his omniscience just is the divine being. It's who God is. All that is in God is God. If you attribute anything to God, the thing you attribute must be identical to the divine essence, the divine being. 
Now I know this may be dense, maybe you haven't heard this kind of stuff before, so I'll try to use another illustration. If I say an apple is red, I'm not saying that red is the essence of an apple. You can change the color of an apple from red to green, and it's still an apple. It hasn't changed. Red is not the essence of an apple. Redness is not appleness. You can change its color and still have an apple. So apples have colors. It's not what they are. Apples are made up of different parts. You can change some of those things of what it is and still have an apple. But pop properly speaking, God does not have attributes. He simply is his attributes. Love is the divine essence. Wrath is the divine essence. Wisdom is the divine essence. Every attribute. We must ensure that that attribute is consistent with every other attribute. It's understood in light of other attributes. There are no contradictions in the being of God. He is a most pure spirit, Scripture says. He does not have parts. It's not that this part of God is loving, this part of God is wrathful, this part of God is righteous, this part of God is gentle. All that is in God is the divine essence. So God doesn't have to suspend his wrath to show his love. He doesn't have to suspend his grace to show his righteousness. God does not have parts. He is simply divine. He is pure act. As John Owen said, all that is in him is himself. So these attributes of God are ways for humans to speak positively about that one indivisible essence of God as we perceive him in many various ways in the effects that he has caused in creation, in the things that he's made. They are a way for man to speak about God who he cannot see in terms related to things that we can see. As the scripture says, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So you might say, hey preacher, so I can't see God? I can't comprehend God? How can I know who God is and what he's like? If God is so transcendent to be out of our grasp, he's on a different plane of being. How can I know him? He seems impersonal. Scripture says no one has seen God. So what do you do with that? How do you make sense of it? And is this all just human philosophical distinctions? Or is there some kind of substance to it? Is this just your opinion? How do I know you're telling me the truth? One classic text of Scripture we can turn to in relation to these things is Exodus 33, 18-23. In this text, Moses says to the Lord, Please show me your glory. Moses wants to see with his eyes who God is in his essence. He wants to know God as God knows himself. He wants to know who God is and what God is like. The Lord responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, 
and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. So to repeat, Moses asks to see the glory of God. God says, okay, I'll show you my goodness. But no one can see me and live. So on the one hand, all my goodness will pass before you and I'll proclaim my name to you. You'll see who I am. But on the other hand, you can't see who I am. No one can see me and live. God tells Moses, you cannot see my face. And God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock while he passes by. He puts his hand over and Moses sees his back and not his face. So what is this passage trying to teach us? There's a lot of things you could draw out of this passage. But what's relevant to the topic at hand is that we do not have immediate sight of who God is in himself. We don't have immediate access to God's glory. We don't gaze immediately on the face of God. We can only see his back, as it were, and not his face. We see his effects, and not he himself, because Scripture says he dwells in unapproachable light. No one can approach to him. So God speaks to us here in terms that we can understand. Think about it. If we want to know someone, if we want to talk to someone, we look them in the face. I'm looking at all your faces right now, seeing how you're reacting to this, all these kinds of things. If we want to know someone, we look at their face. The face reveals how someone is feeling, can tell us what they're thinking, possibly. It's how we tell one person apart from another. It's how we see a person's character and identify them. God says here we cannot see his face. We can only see his back. We see the outskirts of his ways. We see what remains after he has passed by. We see the effects he causes to come about. But we don't see he himself. We see him as he has revealed himself in the word which he wrote and in the world which he made. Is this just my opinion? Let's look to another text. Job 26. Job is speaking of the transcendence of God and he speaks of his might displayed in creation. Job says he stirs up the sea by his power and by his understanding he breaks up the storm. By his spirit he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. And how small a whisper we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? So Job talks about all these things that God has done in creation, all these things that he's seen, these wonders that he's worked. And he says these are the mere edges of his ways. As impressive as they are, they're just the edges of his ways. They're the outskirts. They're not the substance of God. So it's like driving through Rudolph or driving through Saratoga, driving through Kellner and thinking you've seen Wisconsin Rapids. Outskirts. You haven't seen what makes Rapids Rapids. You don't know it yet. It's like walking up to the rim of the Grand Canyon or the entrance before you even see the canyon itself, saying, wow, that's something. 
turning around and going home. It's like doing the same thing at Glacier National Park. See some mountain ranges on the way there. You think they're impressive, but you don't know what you're missing inside the park. When I worked out in Montana, I quickly learned as I started climbing the mountains and such out there that a mountain is different to actually climb than to just look at from the foot of it. There are rivers you can't see, creeks you have to cross. There's ponds concealed full of fish up there, hidden peaks, boulder fields to cross, scree to scale, bears to avoid. So we only know the outskirts of God's ways. And if you think as a Christian you have scaled that peak, you understand who God is in himself, think again. So we know God's back and not his face in this age. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, we see as in a mirror dimly. But in the age to come, we will see him face to face. So we know God not immediately, but as it is through media. We see effects and not the cause, just as we might see the effects of wind and not wind itself. And yet without seeing it, we get to know something about it. So the attributes of God are man's way of speaking something true about the essence of God. They allow us to say something true about God in a human way, though they do not allow us to say what God is in himself. So we speak of God by analogy. We speak of what he is like and not what he is. And this is why the closest we get to God's name in Scripture is, I am who I am. In Genesis 32, 29, Jacob says to the Lord after wrestling with him all night, please tell me your name. And the Lord says, why is it you ask about my name? In Judges 13, 18, he's asked his name and says, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? God's name, that title that would tell us what he is in himself, is beyond, beyond our human comprehension. So God is completely other than us, transcendent, beyond our understanding. And yet, he has revealed himself to us. He has made himself known. So we know God by his attributes. And although there is one indivisible essence with no parts, we conceive of God as possessing a multitude of attributes or perfections. And these attributes truly belong to God, each one, even though they're not really distinct in God, but only virtually distinct. We could probably list an infinite number. What are these attributes I'm talking about? God is eternal. God is immutable. He doesn't change. God is infinite. God is majestic. God is almighty. God is all-knowing. God is faithful. He is jealous. He is just. He is holy. He is all-wise. He's transcendent. He's beautiful beyond wonder. He is perfect. He is zealous. Our Lord is wrathful. He's gracious and kind. Our God is absolutely independent. Our God is three, Father, Son, Spirit. Our God is one, a simple, undivided, divine 
essence. God is invisible. He is incomparable. He is powerful. He is love. And Scripture tells us that in Christ, all the fullness of this deity was pleased to dwell. Scripture tells us that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Scripture tells us that Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature. That in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So that although God is transcendent, he is high and exalted, he dwells in unapproachable light. He cannot be seen. He's beyond anything we can comprehend. Even though any child would tell you, you can't fit an elephant in a shoebox. It doesn't make sense. But Scripture tells us that that infinite God I've been talking about, He came and dwelt among us. The infinite became finite. The wisdom of God, the wisdom of that God who existed before all things began, who caused all things to exist, that one, that eternal word became flesh. He became a creature. He revealed himself in a way that we can understand. He came as a man. He spoke our language. Like some of the reformers would say, he lisped to us, like a mother might lisp to a baby. He spoke baby talk to us so that we could understand something about his ways. Paul says that in Christ, this incarnate word are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Peter tells us that these things that have been revealed among us, this incarnate Christ and God dwelling in flesh, Peter says these things are which angels long to look into. So this is not a natural or common thing. This gospel is supernatural. God didn't have to create the world. He didn't have to create man. Much less did he need to redeem man once he had sinned and rebelled against him. But God, that eternal God, the one who needs nothing else to be who he is, who makes everything else what it is, the one who made the worlds and galaxies and stars, that one took on flesh. And there was a union of the divine and the human such that Christ could say to his disciples, if you had known me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then again, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So can you comprehend the grace and the wisdom and the power of God? That infinite gulf between God and man that was so wide that no one could traverse, made wider by our sin. Through Christ, in his infinite wisdom, God parts that impassable gulf. He bridges that divide so that we can cross over as on dry land. Or even better, Christ comes to us. He is the bridge. He is the way, John says. So that great God can become our own. And though we can't even know God in himself, he makes us partakers in the divine nature by faith. 
And so in that respect, we can say with Athanasius, the Son of God became man so that man might become God. Not that man becomes divine in himself, but he becomes a partaker in the divine nature, as Peter talks about in one of his epistles. So God is the gospel. Christ died in love to make us partakers of that divine nature, incomprehensible, infinite, eternal, blessed, glorious. God is the promise. God himself. And that promise is for all men. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Believe in Christ. We have no hope in ourselves. We're not glorious. We're not wonderful. We're not beautiful in ourselves. We're not eternal. We're not blessed in ourselves. We're not righteous or wise or gracious in ourselves. Scripture says that we are dust. And to dust we will return. Paul said in Romans 7, 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. But in Christ, for those dead in sin and corruption, is the gift of resurrection and life for all who will believe. So believe in Christ and be saved. Now you might say, hey preacher, I guess this is great and all. I'm picking up on some of it. I guess I'm following some of this. But can we really sit here and talk about heaven and gaze on heaven when the world's going to hell? Why start this series on the attributes of God? Can we really be gazing up into heaven in a time like this? I don't think we can afford not to be looking on these things, thinking about these things. You can see hell is moving, lines are being drawn, the map is being laid out. We can see where things are going in our culture. And I want to do this so that when that time comes, when a fiery trial may come on us, persecution, as it has in other countries that have gone this way, if that comes, we will be ready. May God give us revival in this place. May he stave off the wolves and give us political freedom. May we not be persecuted for what we believe as Christians. May he keep us from this fiery trial that seems to be coming. But if he doesn't, he is still my God. As Daniel said before being thrown into the fiery furnace, he is still Lord over all. And if you're going to have the strength to stand in this evil day, if God is going to deliver us, he will use men and women of unshakable faith to do so. David, Moses, Abraham, Elijah, Paul, Luther. Their Christianity was not superficial. It was something they were to the core of their being. They believed God was who he said he was. They believed he was who he said he was in his word. And therefore, no matter what happened around them, no matter how much the world shook, they could do what God called them to do. 
Because their hearts were set on Christ. They took refuge in Him. They could stand in an evil day. And they would not deny God because they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that He is who He is. That all nature sang a chorus of His glory and His grace. They revealed in a visible way His invisible attributes. And they would not be shaken. Only in Christ is there any hope of salvation. Psalm 33:17 says, "A horse is a vain hope for salvation. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength." Psalm 20 verse 7 says, "Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God." So don't look to any other ultimate hope. Look to Christ, this God who is infinite, invisible, immortal, eternal, who became flesh and gave his life as a ransom for you so that you might live for him. Fight for the true. Fight for the good. Fight for the beautiful. Fight with all your might in gratitude for all that he's done. If you are in Christ, you already have eternal life. It's given to you as a gracious gift received by faith. So fight in gratitude. Fight for the good. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But remember, this world is fleeting. What we see around us is passing away. It will not last forever. But what is unseen is eternal. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not be drawn away from the light and life and the hope of the gospel in your Son, Help us to know who you are. Help us to understand your worth. Help us to understand your holiness, how you are set apart and different from us. Please lead us in these things in the coming weeks. Give us grace. Help us to be salt and light in an evil day. And I pray that you would glorify your name through Jesus Christ and that you would make us truly disciples of Christ. Pray in his name. Amen.